Give it up, baby. I've studied all your moves. Yeah, study this! <laughs> Good everyone, welcome to the Forbidden Technique Podcast on the Fightside Podcast Network with me, your host Silas Martin, my co-host as always, Christian Reynolds. And today we're just going to be hitting a recap of a whole bunch of stuff that happened over the weekend. We only previewed the UFC Fight Night card last week, but there was a bunch of other stuff that either we kind of just forgot to mention, or we thought was going to be just more interesting to talk about in retrospect. So today, as well as covering the UFC we're going to be talking about some fights that happened in uh, one championship and Bellator. But first, we're just going to go back over the main card from the UFC Fight Night card, headlined by uh, Tiago Santos versus Magomed Ankalaev, which was a pretty tepid main event to top an action-packed main card. You kind of hit the nail on the head last week, Christian, with something you said. Where you were like, oh, this could be one of those fights where they both get each other's respect early, and then the rest of the fight, they're just really tentative and the fight's bad. Yeah, and that kind of happened. Uh, Ankalaev had good ideas early about hitting Tiago Santos the exact way that we said he's been knocked out and hurt like pretty consistently throughout his career, where he relies so much on being mobile and scaring people off with his power, and if you can back him up to the cage and get him to lash out, then he can be countered and... Uh, Ankalaev hurt him with the right hook in the first round. Uh, but then in the second round, uh, we saw that Tiago is still dangerous with the counter-punching and hurt Magomed Ankalaev with a couple of left hands. The first one dropped him to a knee as he was recovering from a kick. And then as he was getting his shit together, Tiago hit him with another left hand that dropped him pretty badly, finished the round on top, but it was too late to really get anything out of it. And then the rest of the fight, they would just, kind of both very tentative and fought at a very mid-pace. So Thiago also probably took the fourth round with the offense. He landed early, uh, gave up one takedown late that didn't really have that much impact, but uh, probably was what sealed the round for the the other two judges for Magomed Ankalaev because... Uh, not that much else happened in the round other than the couple of flurries that Thiago got off early. Um, yeah, it was a real, uh, it was a real Whitaker Till kind of shaped fight. Yeah, and I hope that this is an, enough evidence finally for people to accept that Uncle Ive is not a wrestler. He just can wrestle. There's a massive difference because he he's a he prefers to strike. He, most of his fights, whenever he's getting the fight he wants, it's just him striking. And if he sees a takedown, it's easy. He takes it. But you know, the person he's grappled with the most in his UFC career is Paul Craig. He he lost that fight. <laughs> He, he prefers to strike, and I was kind of expecting him to just be willing to strike the entire fight against Santos and likely win it, and he kind of did, but it was more tepid than I was hoping it would be, but also kind of expected it. Yeah, uh, Magomed Ankalaev, even though he he is mainly a striker, I also just thought he was more the kind of guy who would go for a takedown when it's the play, which it seems like. It probably is against Thiago Santos at this point in his career, but he didn't have much success with that even when he went to it, which he didn't do much. And people like to remember the 
Paul Craig fight as like it was just a complete drubbing for Ankalaev before he got triangled and had a brain fart and tapped with a second left. Um, but Paul Craig took him down twice in that fight and got a decent bit of top position on him. You know, Magomed Ankalaev, he still showed like his pedigree in, in that phase with how he was able to regain top position, but yeah, it's just not, it's not really his skill set. He, he he just he looks like a guy who does that. Yeah, and I hope that people recognize now that Ankalaev is not the 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 Khabib of light heavyweight. He's just another Alexander Rakic that just kind of hits harder and will actually lead a lot more than Alexander Rakic will. Um, but they should probably fight at this point, right? Yep, that's what I was getting at. <laughs> yeah, um, but Tiago Santos showed he can still be dangerous in spots. He's just. He's definitely not an action fighter anymore because he's old and is just relying on his power and picking his moments, which is still kind of working for him from time to time. Like, he got the most significant offense off in this fight. He just didn't win the rounds. He had the now champion Glover Teixeira just on the brink of knockout almost every point in that fight up to losing it, which, you know, is how Glover Teixeira gets you. But I think it's worth noting that he just looked particularly miserable against Rakic and Johnny Walker because those were guys who just wouldn't lead on him at all. And Santos doesn't want to push a pace anymore, doesn't really want to lead. He just wants to wait for his counter opportunities. So, um, yeah, just, just give him a step back divisionally and, and keep him in three-round fights. Probably give him a rematch with Anthony Smith or something. Yeah, wasn't their fight initially at 185? It'd be cool to see how that works out at 205. Yeah, the, they were both the guys who were the success story of being a journeyman at middleweight who goes up to 205 and becomes a title challenger. But uh, I don't know, Anthony Smith's probably improved since then and Tiago's declined a good bit, so it might also just be sad. I don't know. In the co-main event, uh, Song Yudong knew exactly what he was there to do. It came out of hot throwing big, powerful combinations, blitzing in against Marlon Marias. I clipped him with a big right hand earlier that kind of buckled the knees of Marlon, and from there he was just on the back foot. Still fast, still kicking hard. Um, but as soon as Song was landing clean on him, it was just all downhill from there. In the first round, landed just one of the silliest combinations of like a big, wide right hand into a left uppercut, into a right uppercut, sent Marlon Marais flying. Yeah, Song Yudong, pretty good. Seems to be improving. Always been a, just an absolutely disgusting athlete. He's been fighting since he was very young. He's got, got a real knack for it. Um, I'd like to see him fight someone like Ricky Simone, but he called out Dominic Cruz. I guess trying to uh, finally get a... a <laughs> a win for Team Alpha Male over Dominic Cruz. Yeah, trying to change the ratio from being like 17 to 2 to like 17 to 3. Dominic Cruz has like a full MMA fighter's record against Team Alpha Male. I'm not that interested in seeing that fight. I want to see Yudong against other tough contenders who are rising through the ranks. I think I would like to see the Dominic Cruz fight because it would kind of test the adjustments and improvements that he's made. Because I think... Like two years ago, Song Yudong, if you just put him now, would kind of get tuned up by Dominic Cruz. But I think with the improvements he's made, he may have actually built himself into a fighter that can win that matchup. And I'd, I'd kind of have to see it to believe it. Well, yeah, I mean, if Dominic Cruz is down for that, then let's go. 
And uh, Marlon Marias, it's it's rough to say, but he should probably retire at this point. Um, he's been knocked out in five of his last six fights, and in a lot of them has just lost in ways that you just can't see him coming back from. Just really unfortunate to say because he was such a talented fighter who had such a good run in WSOF and came into the UFC right at the end of his prime. And it's it's really hard with Marlon to tell exactly where his prime ended because he just went on a streak of just absolutely nuking people in early in fights leading up to a title shot where he destroyed Henry Cejudo early and then fell apart when he couldn't get the finish when Henry Cejudo was able to just grit it out and fuck him up in the clinch and finish him on the ground. And since then, he's just never looked the same. And you got to wonder, like, would the same thing have happened if he didn't get those early finishes against against Jimmy Rivera or against Aljamain Sterling? You got to wonder if he was just papering over something that that was happening for a long time with just like absolutely obliterating people early in fights. But then you also got to wonder, like. Pretty much the the majority of fights th- throughout his career at the elite level have been fights where he either destroys someone or just kind of neutralizes them to a mid-paced decision because particularly uh, in his physical prime, he had really good footwork on the outside and was great at kicking off of the back foot. So, um, I don't know, it may have been something that always was a problem for him and just now that he's just declining physically and doesn't seem to be able to keep it together mentally in fights when things aren't going his way is just just getting worse and worse for him and he's just getting finished easier and easier and it's a it's pretty it's pretty rough to watch to be honest yeah and he he went to tiger now and like he's a level of past it that switching a gym isn't going to change anything for you it's just going to take you away from the amount of happiness that you're actually getting by being at home so he he made his last shot. He tried a new gym change. It didn't work out. He took his gloves off in the cage. Hopefully he's done. Yeah, it was pretty sad, but um, the future seems bright for Song Yidong. It's a good passing of the torch fight because, you know, just super athletic guy that blasts people out early is always going to be fun at bantamweight. It's the bantamweight archetype. Yeah. And then a uh, top 15 matchup in the featherweight division we had Sadiq Yusuf uh, taking a decision victory over Alex Caceres, a fight where we both picked Alex Caceres, and I think you can kind of see the reasons why. Um, he was getting pushed back a lot in this fight, but he was also just fairly comfortable moving backwards and fighting long and being really awkward for Sadiq Yusuf. Um, using his weird head movement to actually just negate a lot of Sadiq's offense early and was countering back, but just had the issue that because he was constantly moving backwards and his punches just don't have authority on them. And from the second round on, he just started getting low kicked up really hard. The, the decision was just never going to go his way. So it's a, it's a rough one that just shows uh, that there was always going to be, be a ceiling on this late prime run that Alex Caceres is on. And that he should probably just be getting some more like fun veteran fights. Yeah, I think Sadiq also showed that he has a bit of a hard cap for how much he can progress. I think that Caceres is exactly ranked where he should be. I think 15 is appropriate. He's not 
elite by any stretch, but he's definitely a step above guys like I'm, I'm going to say even guys like Burgos, uh, because though Burgos does seem to have a higher ceiling, he's, he can't replicate it. And he, he's kind of has been having a lot of troubles with things that Caceres is just going to be able to work around by being weird. Like not having that concerted of like a, like, Cazares doesn't fight any particular way every fight. He just kind of like moves around. And if you make him fight on the back foot, he'll fight on the back foot. If you keep moving back, he'll be like, fine, I'll, I'll move forward. But a guy like Burgos is always going to be moving forward. So certain matchups are just going to torch him. But Caceres is a guy that can just go to a decision with anyone. Unless you can ruin a choke him, of course. But he can normally go to a decision with any level of fighter. And that's going to be hard for a guy like Sadiq that kind of needs someone that he can blast out or scare him into exchanges because he he hits hard but his chin isn't that good so he doesn't want to take unnecessary risks all the time to finish people which can kind of slow down the pace of Sadiq's fights to ones that it kind of muddy the decision because honestly if he had landed like 15 less low kicks against Caceres he might have lost a decision and Caceres should be well enough below Sadiq's level to where Sadiq can just win but he seems to have like a mental block that stops him from it. Well, I mean, I'm still going to give Sadiq the credit for just finding one simple adjustment that he just stuck to and won him the fight like pretty easily because he was struggling to hit Caceres to the head cleanly and was just like, oh, this guy, like, every time I do anything, he he either just uh, blitzes at me or uh, tries to, like, duke my punches and then run away out the pocket and in either situation I can just blast a right low kick and kind of just worked even though he maybe got outstruck to the head Sadiq was just constantly off balancing Caceres with these with these big loud impactful low kicks and um, it was it, it, it was enough and it didn't stop working so there was no reason to expect him to have to make any more adjustments than that so um, I, I, I agree he's again he's probably He's probably not going to progress that much more than where he already is, like rankings wise, just because it's such a stacked division. And I think the guys around where he's ranked, like Danny Gay and Shane Burgos, could be kind of difficult matchups for him. I still think he's a good fighter, and I want to see him fight those guys. And I want to see Alex Caceres versus Cub Swanson. That's a perfect matchup. And then um, Khalil Roundtree um, killed Carl Roberson, ate his soul. Uh, I kind of did a cowardly sadness hedge where I was like, well, Carl Robeson's like big. He can do a submission. I don't know. Khalil Roundtree's hard to pick. Even though I really like Khalil Roundtree and I like to see him succeed because he's just he's got a fun style. He's crazy jacked and fast and hits really hard. And he's a, he just seems like a very nice guy. He's He's a gentle soul. And if none of you have ever seen video of him and Anderson Silva reenacting the boyfriend confrontation scene from Bad Boys 2, you need to go hit that up real quick because it is the most cursed and wholesome thing you've ever seen. It's incredible. But yeah, he came out just stalking Carl Robeson, not throwing a huge amount in the first round, but making Robeson uncomfortable and making him pay for any offense that he wanted to get off, constantly like parrying his kicks and coming back with hard offense. Then in the second round, just came out, blasted him with a huge right hook as he was backing out of the pocket. And as Robeson was trying to get up, Khalil Roundtree hit him with his signature technique, the switch kick to the ribs as the guy's trying to stand up. And it fucking sent Robeson flying. 
from there, he he was out of it. Couple more punches around the guard got the job done. It was a nasty finishing sequence, and then he dropped a a, a beautiful inspirational post fight speech. Yeah, pretty much a flawless performance by him. Uh, it's as good as a Khalil Roundtree performance gets. He he got back to his roots and landed the soccer kick. So that's always great to see. But I want people to remember that he kind of does this every few years, and then he has a fight like the Marching Prashnil fight that kind of undercuts the things that he did prior. Yeah, he ha- he has like the Eric Anders fight or knocks out Gokan Saki, and people are like, damn, Khalil Roundtree's a problem. And then, you know, he fights an aggressive wrestler or just gets knocked out in a stupid way. But he he still seems to be to be improving every time he has one of these fights where he actually looks good, and he's put he's put a couple of good wins together now. Yeah, it's just like I've seen Khalil's career since I, pretty much a lot of it since I started watching in uh, late 2016. He went on a two KO streak after a two loss streak, and people were like, "Oh, he's 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 back. He's gonna fuck people up." Then he knocked out Saki. You're like, "Wow, he's so good." Then he lost to Johnny Walker, and people were like, "Oh, never mind." And then he beat up Eric Anders really easily. And then people are like, oh, he's back. And then he lost to Kutalaba and Prashnio. And people are like, oh, never mind. And now he's back on the upswing. So this happens to him a lot. Hopefully he can maintain it. But I'm not expecting it. But people thought he was done after the Prashnio fight. And he's kind of just this guy. He's going to do this. Could start giving him ranked matchups at this point. You know, the guys just on the uh, the bottom end of the top 15 right now are like Ryan, Span, Jimmy, Crute, and Dustin Jacoby. I kind of think he would dust all of those guys. Yeah, he could also be a problem for guys up, like ranked up a bit higher. Like him versus Anthony Smith has two distinct outcomes that can happen. Either Khalil wins by knocking him out really early or he gets uh, submitted in the third. I mean, he also knocked out Paul Craig back in the day. True. It's light heavyweight, man. Like, the, the sky's the limit for Khalil. And then uh, Drew Dober won kind of the exact way that we expected him to, but even quicker. Terrence McKinney really has a perfect style for fighting on short notice because every fight he has, he just comes out really hot and just blasts the most ex- insane dynamic offense he can possibly muster. So it's good for, uh, you know, guys who haven't had a lot of time to do tape on him, and particularly if you don't know where your cardio's at, just like try and fucking blow someone out. But wow, he fell apart quick when he couldn't get the finish. It looked like he was getting the finish early when he like kind of pushed Drew Dober off balance with a flying knee, but then like started just blasting him as he was getting to his feet. He he did a really good job of something that I like to see people do in MMA, which is just constantly attacking in transition. Like if if people are trying to get to their feet or exit clinches or anything like that, always trying to get offense off while they're just focused on regaining balance and getting back to their stance. But um, Drew Dober's tough as shit. He hung in there. And when it seemed, it just seemed like when McKenney had knocked Dober down and taken him down a couple of times and Drew Dober had weathered the storm, he just fell apart. I don't know if it was a mental thing from not getting the finish after getting everything he normally needs to get the win or if just throwing that much offense that hard that early when it was a short notice fight, yeah, just just gassed him out. But yeah, Dober ends up uh, stuffing a takedown, and while they're 
while they're in the clinch, hitting him with a big knee to the body, finishing him on the ground. What a comeback for Drew Dober. Yeah, it's a it's a really weird matchup because I think Dober is maybe the only guy in the division I can think of off the top of my head that's durable enough to eat that amount of shit from McKinney. But I think there's other fighters that could kind of get the same fight out of him just by uh, like mitigating better and being better defensive fighters. Yeah, there's not that many fighters who would get knocked down the way Drew Dober did in the first minute and be able to come back from that. But there's also a lot of fighters who just wouldn't have gotten knocked down like that once you start getting up there at lightweight. Yeah. So um, it is difficult to assess Terence McKenney as a prospect at this point because this has happened before. There's context to it at this point. You know, Drew Dober has a lot more experience and the short notice is always a factor, but it seems to be something of a pattern in his fights. And you have to wonder if he just can't get that early finish, if he's just always going to be this guy and just fall apart. But it'd be really good to see him get it together because he's an insanely dynamic athlete. He's got he's got a ton of great ideas offensively and he can fight everywhere. He just probably needs to get his shit together mentally a little bit. So then um, opening the card, Alex Pereira took on Bruno Silva. Bruno Silva kept to his word, pretty much just went out there and banged with former two-division glory champion and one of the most nuclear punches to ever live. And um, it was a good fight. I thought Bruno Silva made a good account of himself, even though he lost pretty hard. And um, and Alex Pereira seems to be <clears throat> seems to have something of a future as an MMA fighter. Yeah, I, I like that Bruno came out ready to kickbox, but he added like a, a little bit of an MMA flair to it. Like he, he shot for a takedown after a little while after he got his opponent like ready for the stand-up. Hey, he threw him in there just to get him thinking about it. You should always like, look, even someone who just wants to strike in MMA should have a takedown that they go to. Yeah, it just throws people off. It, it, it fucks with people. And makes it easier to stand your ground. Unfortunately for Silva though, I think that actually wore him out more than any of the striking did. So prayers started kind of coming on late because Bruno Silva had worn himself out doing a bit of clinching with Prayer, who's the larger guy. But Prayer was getting his reads throughout the entire fight. He started working the body really well towards the later half of the fight. And he kind of figured him out completely by the time you got to the third round. That mixed with Silva being very tired, not able to sustain the offense that was keeping Prayer off of him initially. So, yeah, I think Pereira is... He's at least going to be like top 10. I mean, it's middleweight and he's got like the experience and the base and the striking and is clearly um, taking the wrestling seriously, but also not getting MMA brain from it. Like he knows what he needs to do in fights. The only time he willingly went to the ground was when Bruno Silva pulled guard with 10 seconds left in the round. So he's just like, I'll finish the round on top. I'll Dominic cruise it because I'm not going to get submitted. It's just smart. But the rest of the time, he's always just making sure he's working to his feet and getting back to range. I think he just has a, a kickboxing style that translates pretty well to MMA because um, it's a lot of you know just single strikes from long range that he's just building off of by filling the space with feints. And his defense is a lot more just like long boy stuff where he's relying on using his feet to keep himself out of range and using a long guard. You know, he's not one of these kickboxers who's just like, I, I walk forward with high guard and rely on having big gloves. He's, he's got a very, like, 
like troubling frame. The fact that he's six foot four and has crazy long arms, but can make middleweight pretty comfortably. So he's even though he's he's getting up there in age and has had a full kickboxing career, he's got a future in this division. Um, but Bruno Silva, like I, th- I thought, just I thought, I thought he did a good job considering the fight that he had to fight with Pereira and the experience differential in that kind of fight. Yeah, it's not Bruno Silva's style to grapple, and he didn't grapple because that's not what his style is. So people that were expecting him to just grapple the entire fight were not understanding Bruno Silva. Yeah, and he had Pereira on the back foot pretty much the whole time, was doing a good job of closing him down and like landing combinations, and then as Pereira was backing out of the pocket, uh, like he would land low kicks and body kicks, constantly hitting the trailing leg. But, you know, Pereira is just... He's very experienced and composed and also has a very good chin himself. But my God, the chin on Bruno Silva to be able to take Alex Pereira's left hook clean like multiple times in a round and still be standing at the end of that. This guy's a fucking lunatic. Uh, I, I love him. I'm, glad, I'm happy to have both of these guys around in the division. So uh, that's all we're going to hit from the UFC card. But one championship actually had a really good event on Friday. The first fight we want to mention from that is Martin Nguyen versus Kirill Gorobitz. Martin Nguyen, the former featherweight and lightweight champion for one championship. Very fun, interesting striker. Really just likes to walk people down and bitch them with sick shot selection. And that's exactly what he did to Kirill Gorobitz. Just constant pressure, not letting Kirill Gorobitz have any success with the wrestling and constantly punishing him for anything that he wanted to do. Hitting him with savage body shots in combination, like slipping into left hooks to the body and then hitting knees and stuff. Had Kirill running away from him, hitting him with right hooks while he's turned away. It was an artistic ass whooping. Yeah, anyone who enjoys seeing someone get broken down over the course of an extended fight should go watch that because he kind of shows like a lot of examples of how you want to do that. You you don't have to constantly crowd someone like a guy like Marab will to break them. You can just like stay in their face, fuck their body up, land power shots, keep them scared of you, keep them from throwing anything too hard back and, and just break people like that. Yeah, Martin Nguyen, he's a great action fighter and is honestly one of the few MMA fighters from one championship that if he's out of fighting, you've got to go check out every time. Well, then uh, in the co-main event, John Lineker, he finally fucking made it to the fight. We talked about this fight a while ago and then he was out with COVID and we were like, okay, we're just going to talk about John Lineker fights when they've actually happened because he's so fucking unreliable. But he fucking did it, man. He knocked out Bibiano Fernandez with his signature combination where he throws the, the wide right hook to, to the body and comes up with the left hook over top. Um, and uh, Bibiano Fernandez looked good. This really was a fight of who could find the left hooks. Because, you know, John Lineker was just doing his classic, just constant pressure, huge power combinations, like only hooks. He doesn't know how to throw straight punches. And uh, Bibiano, like, Got some takedowns, was able to get some top control, even dropped Lineker at one point in an exchange where he just kept finding the same left hook as Lineker was loading up on his. But Lineker, there is just an inevitability to the way that he fights. Where it's just like, you can't get him out of there and he is always going to keep coming and trying to find ways to win. And he's just such an insane physical force. Like, even the guys who beat him in the UFC, 
you got to look at those fights and be like, well, what if, what if the TJ Dillashaw fight or the Corey Sandhagen fight had went another two rounds? Like, he got outclassed by TJ Dillashaw, but had him real, like, like really had him on the run towards the end of that fight, blasting him with the body shots up against the cage. And Corey Sandhagen, like, he, he had his nose exploding while he was in a guillotine. He, he was basically saved by the bell. And so, you know, some people think John Lineker won that fight. So he he's the greatest fighter of all time. I love you, John Lineker. I'll die for you. And uh, it's always great to see these guys who are clearly really good fighters, but for one reason or another, just have trouble climbing the ranks in the UFC. And they end up going somewhere else and, and getting a belt around that waist. It's always, it's always great to see these guys. Yeah, always got to watch the John Lineker fight. He's an inspiration to short kings everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hilarious that every fighter who goes from another organization over to one championship gets conned into believing that they actually don't cut weight there and then everyone they fight is fucking huge. But John Lineker doesn't give a fuck. Bibiana Fernandez was gigantic. He was so jacked. But John Lineker is a guy who just, that, that, that's not a problem for him. He's a fucking hoss and he, he's never going to quit in a fight. Then in the main event, Tan Lee defends his featherweight championship against Gary Tonin. Uh, Gary Tonin is a jiu-jitsu legend. And Tan Lee uh, just like knocked him out in the first minute. Gary Tonin pulled guard and was just going for leg entanglements. That's like his thing. He is famously one of the most dangerous leg lock specialists. Um, even in sport jiu-jitsu, Tan Lee just like uh, understood the basics of defending heel hooks. And also... Um, that there's no striking in jiu-jitsu. And it's a lot harder to finish a heel hook when you're getting punched in the face. So, um, yeah, don't, 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 don't pull guard into heel hooks because you, you, like, like you're just giving your opponent a, a ridiculously dominant position where they're stacked over you and you're on your back and have nowhere to go. You don't finish the heel hook and, and they just want to punch you. You're just definitely going to get knocked. I mean, this was a brutal knockout where he just, as soon as he cleared cleared the leg he just dropped down into a big shot and the first one Gary Tonin was out cold he landed another two just to be sure but uh it, yeah it was nasty so um yeah, jiu-jitsu's not real uh w- once again it's kind of just not a base for MMA on its own because you only have to be able to defend jiu-jitsu for us to uh, at a certain level for it for to be able to shut it down you don't need to be as good as Gary Tonin at jiu-jitsu to not get heel hooked by Gary Tonin um and then you can just like punch the jiu-jitsu guy in the face so yeah it's just exactly what I said uh the other week when um and I'm sorry to jiu-jitsu nerds everywhere when I said that Misha Serkinov was an ADCC gold medalist that was my mistake I heard somebody else say it and just didn't challenge it. And it turns out he was just a champion. In the uh, North American qualifiers. But yeah, jiu-jitsu's fake. Yeah, it's, it's always fun to see a guy that just has like serviceable uh, defense to heel hooks and leg entanglements just keep constantly hunting for grounded pound angles. Because it is like tricky to hit someone when they're going at your legs, but you can still hit them is the important part to, to notice. You don't just want to be on the defense in, in jiu-jitsu mode. You want to start beating the shit out of them while they're doing that because it's also pretty strenuous to constantly be like spinning your body around, inverting, and trying to get the leg. 
Yeah, Tony Lee's really cool. Um, he lost in the Ultimate Fighter. I'm knocked out by Kevin Aguilar in LFA. But pretty much other than that, he has like a hundred percent finished finish rate in all of his wins. It's a decently extensive career. Another guy who's just uh cool to see getting about in another organization. You can run back his fight with Martin Nguyen as many times as you'd like. It's probably going to be a banger every time. Well, um, something else I thought was pretty funny about this fight was that um, Tan Lee trains with Ryan Hall as his jiu-jitsu coach. And I have to imagine that Ryan Hall was just absolutely disgusted at the result of this fight. He's just looking at it going, this guy was pulling guards into leg entanglements, you know, like fighting with honor, and he just got cheaply knocked out. This is fucking bullshit. I like to think that Ryan Hall has the opposite thought, and he was like, yo, look at this fucking idiot fighting like a dummy. You gotta do wheel kicks before you go for the heel hook. Stupid. You can't just pull guard. You've gotta do a bunch of rolls and fall over off of kicks. You gotta lull your opponent into a full sense of security first. Yeah, you can't be attacking your opponent's leg. You gotta let them submit themselves. But you also just like... Leg locks aren't going to work at the high level of MMA most of the time because fighters just won't tap to them. And also, you don't, it's not like an arm bar where you're like, ah, it hurts, it hurts, and then it snaps. It's your leg snaps, and then you're like, well, fuck, it's already snapped. Why would I tap now? Yeah, like I think, I think of like uh, the first round of Corey Sandhagen versus TJ Dillashaw, where Corey blew out TJ Dillashaw's knee. And I really think TJ was just like, okay, got to defend the heel hook. And then, and then he's like, oh, well, fuck, my, my knee's gone. But I didn't tap, and I'm like, fine. So I might as well still fight. Um, and that's, prob- that's probably just going to happen most of the time, even if you like, successfully finish heel hooks. Um, but on the subject of people uh, blowing out their knees, uh, Kevin Lee fought Diego Sanchez in Eagle FC, or as I like to call it, Evil FC. Um, which was actually something we, we really meant to talk about last week because we thought there was like a chance that Diego might win. And he, he maybe kind of did. He at least got the moral victory. Kevin Lee had to show his toughness and grit against savvy veteran Diego Sanchez. Uh, Diego started the fight, you know, being like the, I'm saying like the first 10 seconds, he started the fight real slow for the first like five seconds. And then he just switched stances and blasted a right low kick right behind Kevin Lee's knee. And then Kevin Lee's left leg was pretty much toast for the rest of the fight. And Kevin had to rely on like very short pockets of offense to actually win on the feet because he couldn't continue walking forward and throwing strikes he doesn't seem to know how to kick with an ACL blown, which is like, you know, it's it's harder, but normally an ACL tear, people can kind of fight through it better. But Kevin Lee just doesn't have a stance that facilitates the ability to to fight with an injury like that. He tried to not wrestle Diego too aggressively because he didn't want to gas out from wrestling, which is sensible, but also he should be a high enough level fighter in theory to just beat the shit out of Diego on the ground. I mean, you say that Diego Sanchez is still... Like, if your path to victory is on the ground, that's still hard against him. Kind of the only guy who's really done it was, like, Michael Chiesa. Yeah, and it was a three-round fight that felt like if it was five, it kind of would have gotten real rough for Kevin. Yeah, I mean, the real reason that Diego lost this fight is because he's just, like, old and a shambling mess, and he was constantly just, like, 
he, he was constantly just like running away and like falling over in silly ways whenever anything happened that looked like he was getting dropped, but he was kind of, he was kind of just like fine most of the time. And he really did neutralize anything that Kevin Lee wanted to do to him on the ground. Like it's still just very hard to grapple Diego Sanchez. Yeah, and Diego is too past it to notice when he's like hurt someone. I feel like if, if prime Diego injures your ACL, then he's going to swarm you the entire fight. But he was on the back foot the whole time. Seemed like he was kind of intimidated by Kevin Lee's physicality, which is, you know, fair enough. Kevin Lee's way stronger. But, you know, Kevin couldn't get his, kick, his kicks going with the ACL injury. He couldn't uh, pressure behind any str- amount of strikes. So he, he really just kind of let the fight be tepid and in, in workmanlike to get a decision. Which I guess, if you're okay with that, then that's an okay way to win. But Kevin Lee should be blowing out uh, Diego Sanchez at this point. Like, he's 29. I think Kevin Lee's just mentally shot. I think physically he's fine. Yeah, it really seemed just like um, a string of losing kind of in the exact same way, but to really good fighters just completely destroyed his confidence and he's just never been the same. Which is a shame because at one point it seemed like he was such a promising fighter. He's obviously an insane physical specimen. And when it, when he had the right kind of coaching and mindset, uh, he was getting some really good wins. But at this point, it's really hard to see a future for him in the sport. And because like Diego Sanchez just like sh- shouldn't even be fighting anymore. It-, it shouldn't be sanctioned for him to still be competing in mixed martial arts. It's absurd. Um, and then in Bellator, uh, Mads Bunnell had a main event against Adam Borix. Um, Mads Bunnell, uh, a-, a boy of all people in the MMA analyst sphere, Anyone who loves dorky shit, he's one of the premier old-timey boxing stuff guys in MMA. The kind of guy who, after a win, will shout out like, like Bob Fitzsimmons and Jersey Joe Walcott. You know, you know, guys like us love that shit. He unfortunately lost his first main event, but made a good account of himself. Uh, it, it was a fight where we didn't really get to see any grappling from Mads because he he's traditionally a jujitsu guy that just thinks boxing is really cool. But in this fight, he just had to be a boxer, and he was having troubles in the later fight or later. Rounds in particular, getting past Borks being stronger and having like a passing knowledge of how to get around someone's doing cross arm guard and different like defensive tricks. Uh, Borks was throwing a lot of throwaways and then coming up with knees whenever Mads would duck into them or elbowing him whenever Mads would drop his hands to try and parry something. He was finding a lot of offense on Mads with flying knees, but it was mostly landing to the chest because Mads would, you know, he his defense is largely mitigation. It's not necessarily getting out of the way of everything. So he was just eating flying knees to the chest over and over for the first few rounds. And and Mads was doing a lot of his own work. I will say I did score the fight for Mads. I gave him the first three rounds, but that... It was weird. It, regardless of if you scored the fight for Mads, he definitely did not get 50-45 like the the judges had him, or a judge had it. Mads kind of beat the fuck out of Borks in a lot of regards. Uh, he stayed to the body throughout the entire fight. He was landing left hooks to the body and the left hooks to the head, but Borks started circling away from the left hook to the head by the time, because he just read that the left hook to the body was pretty much always a trigger for the left hand, left hook to the head. It seemed like Mads had problems with the physicality of Borks because Borks was like one of the 
strongest and uh, maybe longer guys that Mads has actually fought. And Mads was able to outwork him to the body a ton. He, he hurt Borks to the body quite a few times with the body work he was landing. But he just he gassed out from landing body work on his opponent, which is something that you really only notice when a guy's kind of physically outmatched compared to his opponent. Uh, Mads also was, he was fighting too technical, like capital T technical. It felt like he was trying to find cool things to land rather than just blasting a right hand. Cause pretty much from the like second round on, if Mads just started going left hook to the body, right hook over the top, it would have fucked up Borks a lot. Like Borks was dropping his left hand all constantly. He was kind of getting shelled up and getting walked into a right hook but Mads just was so tuned in to landing the left hook to the head left hook to the body because it looks cool Um, Mads was also finding nice uppercuts anytime they clinched up he would try and rip the body but have to like take some knees to the arms so if you want to score like arm attrition then Mads kind of got fucked up a lot in this fight but it it feels like a fight where if you watch it in slow-mo then you can find like a pretty good argument for giving it to Mads, but watching it live, there's no reason to upset about giving it to Borks. So Mads needed to be kicking more. There was a lot of things he could have been doing to get himself into the fight, but it seemed just like a bit of inexperience. Cause though he has been fighting for a long time, he just has like a youth to him that is going to get shaken off the longer he goes. Like me and Silas always joke that, uh, you know, Mads Brunel, when he's like 35, is going to be the coolest journeyman that exists. That's exactly what I was going to get to because um, he maybe has a little bit of that early career Bobby Green issue where just because he just loves all of his like weird little defensive tricks so much that he may f- like end up focusing on that a little too much in fights and kind of conceding initiative, letting people run away with decisions where where he feels like he's up because he's like mitigating a good bit of the offense that's coming his way. But if that, if that is the the kind of fighter that he is, then oh man, when he's like 35, 36, all of that experience is all going to come into play. And he's going to have that sick late career run that all of the young veterans find. It was a very fun fight though. And if you can somehow manage to find it, uh, even though Bellator is traditionally very hard to find online, uh, it's a very good fight and worth watching. And then uh, w- one last thing, just quick mention for all the kickboxing nerds. Uh, Mel Groenhart knocked a guy out, another former glory champion who's made a recent transition over to MMA. He's definitely doing it a little bit later than guys like uh, Israel Adesanya or Cedric Dumbe, so it's hard to see where the future lies for him in regards to that and how long he has to make a transition if, if it's something that he's taking seriously. Uh, but he was a very good kickboxer, has a lot of good wins and really only lost to to like really top tier elite guys and um it was a cool knockout um i i like to think that i mean if you've seen his second fight with cedric dumbay where he went for a huge flying knee and dumbay faded off and mel Gronhart jumped out of the fucking ring uh, i wonder if he was just like oh my god i nearly died I need to go to mma where there's a big old cage to stop me like jumping out of the ring when i do flying knees and it's a good thing he did because if he had landed this flying knee in a ring, then they're like they both would have gone out of the ring. It was disgusting. And he showed just the some nasty long boy ground and pound to get the job done. It's always fun seeing kickbox at ground and pound because like wrestlers, 
they're great at getting positions, but they have bad shot selection. <laughs> Whereas strikers doing ground and pound always looks fucking sick. That's basically it. Okay, so that's everything we wanted to talk about from this weekend. It was a pretty crazy weekend. Very eventful. Lots of meaningful stuff happening in a lot of different promotions. And so good to be able to talk about some stuff outside of the UFC. Try to get to it as much as we can, but sometimes there just isn't much going on. Yeah, you can join us in just a few days where we're going to be talking about the UFC London card. Headlined by, headlined by a heavyweight bout between Alexander Volkov and Tom Aspinall. This- some interesting matchups on that card should be a fun one to break down this has been the forbidden technique podcast and see you guys later later